not the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, are individuals who, it's an actual organization, they take great uh, umbrage, they really get upset at you if you talk bad about Israel or Jews, to the point that they'll fight you. They'll, they'll pick a fight with you and this kind of thing. The, the JDL, Jewish Defense League. And so he's standing in our meeting, I'm preaching, he's in our meeting and he's standing there and he's got this thing and he's looking at me like this. And the rest of the, the, rest of the crowd, his crowd is standing there with him and we had other people there too, like we're going to do tonight. And he was really looking mad, angry. And so what I was doing as I was, as I was preaching, I had the sketch already prepared and as I was preaching, I was using the sketchboard and sharing the gospel at the same time, which is really an effective way. It holds people's attention. I changed it all up. I changed everything from what I was speaking on, on the sketchboard, to what I'm about to give to you. And uh, I went with prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. And I like us to look at a few passages of scriptures I'd like us to look at a few passages of Scripture that talk about this, and they're going to be prophecies of Messiah's birth. <clears throat> I changed my whole vernacular, the whole way I was speaking, from saying Christ to Messiah. Because a Jew is not going to appreciate the word Christ. They think it's uh, sized or whatever. It means anointed one in the Greek. Christ means anointed one in the Greek. But I changed it to Messiah, which is Hebrew for anointed one. Saying the same thing, but in the Hebrew versus the Greek. And so that's exactly what I did. So because they, they're more prone to listen to you. Messiah loves you, this kind of thing. And uh, as, I looked, <clears throat> as I looked at him, and as I changed what I was about to say, and I say, just want to let you know, I talk about Messiah. Um, it was an interesting, interesting thing that took place. I'd like us to look at Isaiah chapter 48, if you would, please. We're going to look at three prophecies. There are over 333 prophecies concerning the Messiah. 333 prophecies concerning Messiah in the Old Testament. 333 of these. Uh, <clears throat> it's an interesting, interesting study in statistics, the pro or probabilities, the probability of five of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person is 1 times 10 to the 20th power. That's 10 with 20 zeros after it. If you were to do 48 prophecies of the 333 prophecies, that would be 10 times 1, uh, 1 times 10 to the 157th power. I don't even know if there's a number for that. 157 zeros after the number 10. That's staggering. That's just 48. So it's just a, it's a, unbelievable, the, the issue of, of prophecy. And we're going to talk just about three of them today, this morning. We could talk about all 333. We could talk about them plucking his beard, talking about him on the cross, talking about his resurrection talking about, we're going to narrow it down just for this morning to his birth. Just his birth. Okie doke. Let's just look at this. The Old Testament gives three prophecies of Messiah's birth. 
which we must recognize and rejoice and hopefully use. And hopefully use. And uh, what are these prophecies? Well, we look at the first prophecy we want to look at is in, in uh, well, we're going to look at Isaiah 48. Look at Isaiah 48, if you please. And look at verse 3. <clears throat> this is so powerful to me. It's, in fact, one of the most powerful witnessing tools we could ever employ in talking to a person, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish or whatever. It doesn't matter. This is one of the most powerful tools prophecy is in terms of is the Bible a, a true book? Is the Bible a true book? Is the Bible accurate? Is the Bible a powerful book. Look at verse 3. It says, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. and says, I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them, and I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Verse 5. And I, I have even from the beginning declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I showed it to you, lest you should say, Mine idol hath done them, and my carved image and my melted image have commanded them. Isn't that amazing? In other words, God is saying through the prophet, what I'm going to show you, you're not going to be able to say anybody else did this except me. That's what you're going to have to say. Only I can do this. And I'm going to show it to you enough time given that you're going to look at this and you say, it had to be God. It had to be God. Put your finger, keep your finger there and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Because when we look at this, Paul is going to make a beautiful statement in verses 2 through 4. I mean, it's the word of God, so it's always beautiful, of course. But look at verse, verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. He says this, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okie doke. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Wow. Wait till we get to these. This is, these, are, these are cool. So if I were you, if I was you, I'd be taking notes. Borrow a pen, prick the finger, do it in blood, something. Uh, get a, get, I would take these notes because I'm guaranteeing this. You, you can use what we're about to give to you and talk to your, your patients. You can talk to your friends. You can talk to anybody about these things, and you can show them this. And that the, you know, what are these prophecies? Well, the prophecies, you know, the, the uh, Old Testament prophesies the time of Messiah's birth. Did you know that? The, the time of Messiah's birth. I'd like you to look with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, we're getting a blessing. We're seeing a blessing. And Jacob is, is giving prophetic blessings to his children, his 12 sons. And one of them, he, you know, he talks to Reuben, his firstborn, Simeon, Levi. And then in verse 8, he talks to his son Judah. And he says this about, to Judah. He says, Thou art he, verse 8, 
who from thy brethren shall praise, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies, thy father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from, thy, from, uh, from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Notice verse 10. Notice verse 10. Park your eyes right there. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the, unto the vine, and his ass is cold unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. I want you to focus on verse 10. This is, a, this is a stunning prophecy. Look at verse 10, because he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Question, what is a scepter? What is a scepter? And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now we get a glimpse of what a scepter is. We get a glimpse of what a scepter is. Uh, the scepter might be something like this. If we look at Ruth, no, not Ruth, uh, Esther. We look at Esther, and we find out what Esther was. She was a queen, right? Queen Esther. And Queen Esther would come in, wanted to come into the presence of the king. She's the queen, right? She couldn't do it unless the king tipped the scepter. If he didn't tip the scepter, she doesn't come in, she dies, and everything that she owns and has and all her friends die with her. Isn't that a kicker? So even though she was a queen, the scepter had to be tipped. So when she came in and she wanted to plead for the, her, 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 the lives of, of the Jews because of Haman, it was tipped. That's the scepter. It's representative of authority. It's representative of power, and that's exactly what it is. And notice what he says in Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, what does he mean? He mean he's meaning this. He's meaning the ability for self-rule. The ability for self-rule. You will have a ruler. You will have this rule in Judah. And notice what else he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Now that's ancient, that's ancient verbiage to tell us that from between his feet means the reproductive ability, and you will have a, the ability for self-rule, and you'll have a governor, you'll have a ruler coming from between his feet, until, that's a preposition, I guess, right? Until is a preposition, isn't that right? Yeah. Until something. So notice what it's saying. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until what? Shiloh come. Now, this is not Neil Diamond's thing. I'm, I guess I'm dating myself here. You know, Shiloh, when I was young. And <clears throat> this is not talking about this, okay? It's not talking. Shiloh, even the Orthodox Jews 
will say Shiloh is Messiah. The Orthodox Jews will say Shiloh is Messiah. Isn't that a kicker? <laughs> As a New York City, I think it was September. We were there in September, right? And we went to Washington Square Park, right? And we watched all, they had like a festival, a big festival, remember? And we had all those Orthodox Jews there. I mean, we're talking the Orthodox Jews with the yarmulke and the hat, prayer shawls, ringlets around this, right? Beards if they're married, uh, you know, and there are all these Hasidic uh, Jews are, you know, and they all are rabbinical students. They're all rabbinical students. And I used this verse in talking to them. I used this verse, Genesis 49.10, to talk with them. And I said, who is Shiloh? Messiah. Messiah. Yeah, Messiah. That's Messiah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely right. Notice what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until what? Until what? Shiloh come. Until Shiloh come. And so Shiloh is, is in Judah. Shiloh comes. When will he, when will the ability for self-rule, when will the ability for a, a ruler come stop coming from between his feet and the ability for self-rule, when will that stop? When Shiloh come. Okay, anybody know world history? You say, well, maybe I do. I took a Western civilization course. I know some world history. Uh, when did the Jews have the ability, when did they stop having the ability for self-rule? Anybody know? Well, they lost, how about, the, they, they had the real ability to stop, they even had the Sanhedrin during Jesus' I mean, you know, they lost the ability at the very latest, 70 AD, with Titus, the Roman general, coming in and taking and wiping it out. I've been to Masada, and I've been to Jerusalem, it's 20 mile, 20 miles gap between the two. Are you familiar with Masada at all? Masada is a, is a plateau that was built by, I think, Herod. Herod built this plateau to escape from any enemies, and it had an aqueduct system. You could live there for a long time. And we were up there, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's really high up. It's off the Dead Sea area, and it's really high up. And what they did was, Titus, they, they squelched a big rebellion in, in Judah, in, in Jerusalem. They squelched it. And a whole bunch of Jews went to Masada and went up in Masada and nobody could get at him. Titus the general was so upset that he scraped in prophecy, in fulfillment of prophecy. Notice uh, Matthew 23. Keep your finger in Genesis. But look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And we'll look at verses 13 through 39. Matthew 23, 13 through 39, but we'll look at specifically verses 37 
and uh, thir through 39. And it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often I would gather thy children together as a hen would gather its chickens and under the, her wings, and you would not. Behold, your, houses, your house is left unto you desolate. Right? Left unto you desolate. And I say, for, I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth until you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Okie doke, you got a picture of this? Left unto you desolate. How many have ever heard of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, right? Well, they scraped that temple, they scraped the whole thing, and that's the foundation. That Wailing Wall is the foundation of that temple. They scraped that temple. He was so upset, he took all that material that he scraped from the temple and their surrounding areas, and he transported it 20 miles. This is in 70 AD, and built a rampart. If you're in, looking down in Masada, you could see a picket line all the way around Masada with little camps. This is where the Romans were. And what they did was they built this thing, and it took them a long time, but they were that angry. They were that upset. I mean, we're not talking they brought in the big earth movers and all this. They, they did it with slave labor. They brought all this stuff down 20 miles, then built a rampart. And what they wanted to do is build that rampart to go up there and to kill everybody in Masada. And as the Jews were up there, they saw this day after day, month after month. I forget how long it took them to build that rampart. But they, they, they figured that, well, I'm, we're going to die. So they, they all committed suicide. And there were just a few, just a few that were left that uh, gave the testimony of what took place in Masada. It's amazing. Even the tank corps commanders today uh, the, of the Israeli army, Israeli defense forces, they will go up and take the vow of Masada. That is to say, I will never be taken alive. Right? Well, your house will be made desolate. This happened in 70 AD. They lost all ability for self-rule. They lost all ability for self-rule. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. When do they lose that ability for self-rule? Until Shiloh come. When did he come? He had to come before 70 AD. Talking to those rabbinical students, it's really interesting. A lot of them were from Israel. We're talking to them in Washington Square Park in New York City. And I know down here you have a lot of, you know, a lot of Jewish people. A lot of Jewish people come there as snowbirds. They come from New York. And they're not rabbinical students, generally speaking. So I remember talking to these guys and I said, when did Messiah come? They lost ability for self-rule, you're saying Shiloh is Messiah. When did he come? He had to come before 70 AD. All of a sudden, they couldn't speak English. Their English got real bad and didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to speak about it at all. But I'm telling you right now, this is one of the most powerful. Genesis 49.10 is one of the most powerful because Messiah's birth had to be before 70 A.D. 
Couldn't be any later. It, couldn't be, it had to be before 70 A.D. Isn't that amazing? That's one. And not only, you know, not only did the Old Testament prophesy the time of his birth, but also the place of his birth. I want you to look with me to, uh, you know, Micah. Micah chapter 5. I, like, I always have a hard time with those minor prophets uh, <clears throat> because they're under 18, right? That's why they're called minor prophets. <sighs> That's an old preacher's joke. It's pretty bad, isn't it? Uh, that's pretty bad. No, it's the size of the book that makes determines whether a minor prophet or a major prophet. It's just the size, that's all. And uh, so you have here, you have this, the place. Notice chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now gather thyself, thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He laid in siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with the rod upon the cheek. Wow. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So what do you have here? What do you have got in this situation? You've got here, it's a, a place of incredible obscurity. Though, though Bethlehem Ephratah. Do you ever wonder why? He named it Ephratah, Bethlehem Ephratah. When you look at this, this is usually a Christmas. We look at Christmas and we go, oh, Bethlehem Ephratah and all this, and it was in Bethlehem. This is five miles south of Jerusalem. Five miles south of Jerusalem. It's a small little town. In 1984, I was in Bethlehem, and uh, we were recently there again last year. But uh, I was in Bethlehem, and it was a small town. I was still small. Bethlehem Ephratah. The reason why he says Ephratah, because there's another Bethlehem. There's a Bethlehem Zebulun. That's 45 minutes by car north of Jerusalem. This is five miles south. This is the place of David. I, it just staggers the imagination how this works. By the way, in Genesis 49.10, that was about 1,500 years prior to Jesus ever being born. This is approximately 750 years prior to the birth. 700 to 750 years prior to the birth of Messiah. 700 to 750 years. The United States, that's older twice than the, the, the age of the United States. More than twice. This prophecy, this beats Nostradamus out the door. Get out of here. This is 100% accurate. And uh, this is so powerful. But thou, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands, and it is. It is. It's now in the Arab control right now. But it, the thing is, it's so small and so tiny. Though thou be little among the thousands, out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old to everlasting. And if you were to study the Old Testament, you would know that language is telling us that it is, he is God. This ruler is God himself coming, going to come. And so it's a place of obscurity, it's a place of regality. Notice, I want you to keep your finger in, in Micah, but look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Because when we look at this, this becomes even amazing to me. Just totally amazing. 
And you know this passage, right? And it came to pass. We have little kids read this at uh, Sunday school uh, during the Christmas program, right? And, uh, and it came to pass in those days that went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I did, did you know that Caesar Augustus was a Christian? Did you know that? I didn't know that. And I don't think he was. I don't think Caesar Augustus was a Christian at all. I think Caesar Augustus, he received worship as God. It's called Caesar worship. And uh, Caesar Augustus, he makes a decree. He doesn't go, uh, let's just figure this out. I really want to fulfill prophecy of 700, and seven, 700 to 750 years earlier. <laughs> I don't think he even talked like that. But I don't think he did this. But he makes a decree. And the decree is this, that everybody should, the whole world should be registered. We want to know who's in the kingdom. We want to know who's in our, in our empire. And that the register was made, verse 2, when Quinarius, the governor of Sirius, and all went out, register everyone to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because it was the house and lineage of David. He had to go back. This is five miles south of Jerusalem. This is that little place. It's the city of David. Regality. We're going to have a king is going to be born. Just a little side note. Did you ever wonder why you played the shepherd boy when you were little in the, in the Sunday school Christmas pageant? The shepherds, you ever wonder why the shepherds were there and, he, and the angel came and proclaimed it to the shepherds? Well, Alfred Edersheim gives us a little hint on this one. He wrote The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah. He was an Orthodox Jew that got saved and then studied it like crazy. He said the angel came and proclaimed that Messiah would be born in a, you know, in a manger, right? And he says, this day, remember that? The angel came and proclaimed that to the shepherds. We all know this story, right? Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because these shepherds were tending and, tending and raising sheep for temple slaughter. That's what they were doing outside the south. south. And this gives it another thing. They were tending sheep for temple slaughter. And so these shepherd boys, these shepherds, who were, you know, and they, you get to like these sheep, you know, you get to love them, you get to protect them, you get to, you know, I'm going to, I'll die for them, I'll protect them from wolves, from predators, but they were raising sheep for temple slaughter, so that, you know, that sheep would come and have its throat cut, and he would sell it. They were raising these sheep, and so here comes an angel, and says, the Lamb of God is being born right over here. The one that you're doing that is speaking to everybody year after year, day after day, year after year of the incredible slaughter and the incredible sacrifice that is going to be made on your behalf, here's the one who's going to do it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. He's being born in Bethlehem, right near where you are tending these sheep. Incredible. Just incredible. And then there's an incredible place of butchery. Jeremiah 31, 15. 
place of Messiah's birth, and we look in Bethlehem, Jeremiah uh, talks about this. Jeremiah 31 talks about how this was going to be a place of incredible slaughter. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, verse 15, Does thus saith the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children, for they were not. They were not. Well, you say, well, that's, what's the big deal about that one? What's the big deal about that one? Do you remember when the Magi or the, the three kings came, or the kings came, and they said, well, we want to know, we saw the star, we want to go and worship this king, we want to worship this newborn king, right? Do you remember this? We look at this newborn king, and Herod, what does Herod say? Uh, come back and tell us where he is so we can worship him. Was that Herod's intent? No, Herod's intent was to wipe them out. And when those guys didn't come back because God told them not to go back to them, what did he do? Anything over two years or under, wipe them out. Now, Bethlehem is a small camel town. It's not, I was going to say cow town, but it's a camel town, you know, and small. And then so when you wipe out the young children from two and under, you're wiping out a large population of male in Bethlehem. And that's exactly what he did. It's incredible. And you won't, they will not, it talks about they will not be able to, uh, they won't recover from this in the sense that they will, their hearts will be consistently broken because of the butchery that took place because of Herod. Now, Herod wasn't going, I think I'll fulfill prophecy today. I think I'll work this out. No. I don't think so. It's just an incredible place. Of, it's an obscure place. It's a royal place. And it's also a place of butchery. So we looked at you know, the Old Testament prophecies regarding the time of Messiah's birth, the place of Messiah's birth. And let's look at Isaiah 7.14. This is the manner of his birth. The way he would be born. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And this is, this is an interesting passage because when you look at this passage, I was preaching in Michigan State University. I don't know if I ever told you, I was preaching in Michigan State University and a guy came up to me and told me, he said this, I was in a pretty, fairly decent crowd doing what we're going to be doing tonight. And this professor, his name is Professor Fox. And Professor Fox was an individual who taught statistics at MSU and we were in front of his building. It was a math building, Willis Hall, in Michigan State University. And Professor Fox was a Jew, but not very religious Jew, but fancied himself as a scholar. And so he was standing, I'll never forget, it was a tree over here, he was standing over there, and he said, I got a question for you, I got a question for you, which sometimes happens in an open-air meeting, you know, it doesn't let you finish. And uh, he said, what about Isaiah 7.14? What about Isaiah 7.14? <clears throat> what about it? Let's look at it. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we look at this and we say, this is fantastic. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But notice what he says. I'll give you a sign. 
I'll give you a sign. Now, you say, what's the big deal about this? A virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's the sign. Now, what? it wouldn't be any big deal sign if it was a woman that was just unmarried, had sexual intercourse, and had a child out of wedlock. What kind of sign would that be? Right? But the sign is that she never had sexual intercourse with a human being. The Bible teaches in Matthew that Mary was conceived of the whole, that the Lord Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit in Mary. That's the sign. Right? Never knowing a man. You'd say, wow. And there's no, there's nothing in, there is nothing in, in um, human physiology or animal physiology that'll tell us anything close to this. You can't use any other illustration. It's a sign. It's absolutely, incredibly miraculous that this took place. Well, Isaiah 7.14, and it's really amazing to me because Professor Fox said, what about Isaiah 7.14? He's saying, well, that, that was an unmarried maid, right? But it's an interesting thing. And in talking to Professor Fox, I actually talked to him privately after he, you know, is interrupting. And uh, talking to him about, about this kind of thing. See, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. The Seventy. Seventy scholars translated the Old Testament into the Greek. This is the translation that the Lord Jesus used. When he preached, when he used it, it was a common translation. It was the translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint. 250 years prior to the birth of Christ, this was translated. Okay, you got a picture of this? It translates this word, part, uh, this word virgin, not Alma, but Parthenos, which means in a woman that has never known sexual intercourse with a, with a human being, another male, with a male. You understand this? That's a parthenos means that. Didn't use Bethula, didn't use any other word, used parthenos, which means this, she never had carnal knowledge with a male, ever. Shadowed. And that's how exactly how they translated this one, these Jewish scholars that translated the Old Testament into the Greek. You got a picture of this? Parthenos. That's the Greek word for it. And this is exactly what happened with Mary. Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit and had a child. No wonder it says, it was a sign, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. So if your name is Emmanuel, you got a cool name. You got a very cool name. And for the Jews, names mean things. Names really mean things. It's like going, Emmanuel, come home for dinner, right? It's like saying, God with us, come home for dinner. This is exactly what he is saying. This is exactly because it means something. It's just not indiscriminate name. And this is exactly what he did. So as the son, the eternal son of God. Isaiah 9.6, another prophecy, but look at there. Isaiah 9.6, unto us. A child is born. Unto us a son is given. So that's the eternal son of God. An eternal son 
is given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father of Eternity. The Prince of Peace. Fantastic, isn't it? Fantastic. And so this one that is being born is the eternal Son of God. The God-Man. So the manner of his birth, he would be virgin born. And actually, his birth was just like yours and mine. You know, unless you were C-section, it wasn't. It was a regular, normal birth. It was the conception that was miraculous. The absolute conception that was miraculous. Now, I'm, what we've said here today, you know, it's God with us. He is the mediator between God and man. And if we, were, if we had the time, we were to look at Isaiah 52, 14 through all the, all the way through 53, chapter 53, we would be reading about a suffering Savior who bore our sins, who became sin for us that we might be made right, the righteousness of God in Him. Now, I don't know if you, this means much to you, but it means a lot to me in the sense that this was 750 years prior to ever it happening. 750 years before it ever took place that this prophecy was uttered by Isaiah, among other prophecies as well in the book of Isaiah. And so the question is, do we understand the seriousness of his conception? Do we understand the seriousness of his mediation? His standing in the gap for you. His dying on the cross for you. His coming into the world for you. He did this for you. He came unto his own, and what? His own received him not. He knew he was going to be rejected. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die a terrible death. He knew that he was going to be separated. He knew all these things, and yet he still came. He still came. No one can doubt, no one can ever slam the love of God that he has for you. God intensely loves you, intensely loves me so much so that it says that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I talked about his time. I talked about the place. I talked about the manner of his birth. I was sharing these things that evening, summer evening in New York City with this guy standing there and his friends, some of his friends had left. They just walked away, but he stood there, and as he was looking mean, and as I was going through what I just told you, as I was going through some of these prophecies, like I just told you, his hands came untwined, and his hands like this, and he's just looking, and he started, I could tell that he was softening. I could tell that this guy was softening. He was not hardening up. He was softening because it made sense to him. It, made, it started to make sense to him, right? And I could tell that this guy was right on the verge of trusting Christ, trusting Messiah as his personal Savior. It's amazing to me. His friends came and said, let's go. He said, no, I want to stay here and watch. I want to watch. They said, let's go. This tough kid with JDL on his shirt with his Star of David with a fist through it. And they said, let's go. 
He said, no, I want to watch this. I'm, watch I'm preaching and I'm watching this encounter going on. And I'm pleading with not only him, but the rest of the people to come to Messiah, to come to Christ, to come to receive Jesus as their personal Savior. You know what they did? They picked him up out of the crowd like a piece of lumber. They picked him up and carried him right out to his protest. He didn't want him to do it. He wanted to stay. They just, no, you're out of here. They picked him up and dragged him out. How stupid. I'm just thinking, I'm praying. That was a number of years ago. I prayed that God would just get to him. And the Spirit of God will. The Spirit of God is in the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They just picked him up. I'm just praying that he was in bed. He'd be going, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus is Messiah. And I need to believe on him. When we are, we're in South Florida. Other than New York City, I don't know of a more Jewish place, except maybe the University of Michigan, than right here. You can share this with people. We can share this with people who are going to be standing there hungering, not knowing that Jesus is Messiah. And he's just not some Anglo-Christian type of situation that, Non-Jews believe. No, listen. Guys who wrote about this were Jews. Paul, who was a Jew, wrote about this, saying this is fulfillment. We can use this. We can use this powerfully. And the next thing is I want to ask you is if you received Jesus as your Messiah, have you asked him to be your Savior? Have you asked him? Because look at People think that Christianity doesn't make sense. I want to tell you right here, I'm going to, and I challenge you, and I challenge you on this one. I really do. We can talk about this. Some people say that Christianity doesn't make sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. There is nothing else that makes sense. Hinduism doesn't make sense. Islam doesn't make sense. I know that's not politically correct, but it doesn't make any sense. This makes sense. It can be proven from history and the Bible. And that's cool. Father, we just ask you that you would help us.